What's up, everybody? Today on Talking Politics, we have another great conversation. Today, we talk with Benjamin. He is the host of Radio Revolution. Uh, he is self-described as far left, and uh, we have a good conversation about a good multiple of issues like gun control, corruption, climate change, and all that fun stuff. So enjoy the episode. All right, welcome to the show. Thank you. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, my name is Benjamin Irizarry. I am the host of Radio Revolution, which is a podcast uh, on Anchor and on other different platforms. And uh, my podcast is about how the government and our political system is not working for us anymore and I explore ways that we can change that. So I think most people would agree with you that the political system isn't working. I think a lot of different people have views, different views, but different ways of getting to fix it. So you tend to lean very far left. From I am extremely learned. far left. Uh, I'm probably more far left than any of your, uh, any of our, uh, uh, Democratic candidates for president, probably farther left than anybody in Congress, probably farther left than anybody in government. So how did you get to those views? Wow. Good question. It's just observations over the years. I was, I grew up in a, uh, a union family and my dad was, uh, uh, worked for Florida Power and Light for almost 40 years and he was in a union and, you know, my mom worked and they raised four kids. Neither of them have any college. Uh, I think dad went for a semester, you know, and then he had to drop out to take care of me and my brother who, who he had in high school. And, you know, I mean, he used to take it. They had a strike one time and we went out on the picket lines. So, you know, I, I grew up in a very union, very blue collar family. We didn't have everything that we wanted, but we, we got by, you know, and, uh, I think that that has shaped the way I, I look at the world, the way I think about things. And I, I've just seen over the past, well, 20 to 30 years, the dissolution of the unions. People think that unions are evil and they're not. Now, a lot of, a lot of this has to do with the unions doing this to themselves. There was a lot of corruption in the unions and uh, they shot themselves in the foot a great deal. But unions, you know, helped me uh, achieve my dreams. You know, unions helped my parents take us on vacation every year. You know, the union helped when I, you know, uh, had medical problems. You know, the union made sure that my dad had enough medical coverage and, and vacation time and all of that so that we could have a normal upbringing. And it shapes my worldview because I see the dissolution of the unions and also the dissolution of the middle class. The two are mutually exclusive in my mind. So it is what recently made you want to start the podcast or what was the thing that pushed you towards it? Wow. Well, Hmm. It's just, it's just, uh, again, what I see, what I see mm -hmm. going on in our political system. You know, our well, political was there, system. 
What, sorry, was there like a defining moment? Like, was it when Trump got elected or? Oh, God, no. Uh, I was, you know, I, I felt I've been feeling like this for a long time. Uh, I just see that, you know, we were raised Democrat. And, you know, my parents always voted Democrat. They never voted for a Republican ever. Didn't like the Republicans. You know, the talk around the dinner table was uh, about how the Republicans are made up of the party of the rich and how they're screwing the little guy. And what I've seen over the past 20, 30 years is that the Democrats are also the party of the rich, you know, whereas the Republicans are beholden to big industry and the, uh, the, the Democrats are beholden to Wall Street. So to me, Republicans and Democrats are just the two, two different sides of the same coin. That's all they are, you know? And on my podcast, I always say that, that we need more choices. You know, a lot of people voted for Trump simply out of a hate for Hillary. Or a lot of people voted for uh, Obama simply out of a hate for, for McCain or, or the other side. And, you know, when was the last time somebody voted for somebody and not against somebody else? You know? Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a little personal story. My girlfriend voted for Trump. And when she told me that, I was like, how could you do that? And when she explained it to me about how Hillary is corrupt and uh, all of the things about the Clinton Foundation and her lying and, you know, Hillary was a deceitful candidate. She really was. And my thought was anybody but Trump. But when she explained it to me, the way she laid it out to me, it made sense. It made sense to me. It reminds me of the old Simon and Garfunkel song, Mrs. Robinson. Are you familiar with it? I'm not. <laughs> okay. Well, there's a line in there that says, going to the candidates' debate. Um, uh, laugh about it, shout about it. When you've got to choose, either way you look at it, you lose. And that has stuck in my mind because the, the election of 2016 was really an election of, of uh, it was a dilemma. You know, do I vote for this idiot, you know, this reality TV star that has turned our politics into a reality TV series, or do I do vote for a deceitful candidate who you really don't know what she stands for, you know? And I think that was the, the dilemma that put Trump in the White House. I really do. Well, so how do you think we fix it? How do you think we change our system to get more candidates more meaningful candidates? Well, I think we need more parties. That's, that's one thing. You know, I, you, I heard one of your podcasts and you were talking, it was your first podcast and you were talking about the democratic debates and the split between the moderates and the progressives. I think the progressives should have their own party. I really do, because I don't think that their uh, ideas, their policies fit into the democratic framework. I think candidates like AOC, Bernie Sanders, uh, Elizabeth Warren should be in their own party. That's what I think. And it would give us more, it would give us more flexibility. You know, I don't agree with everything that the Democrats stand for. And I certainly don't agree with everything the Republicans stand for. But if we had another party that had these uh, policies and ideas, I could probably get behind them. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I understand. Uh, 
how do you think we prop up a third party? Do you think it's just going to take like a Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren to say, hey, we're starting a new party? Well, you, you got to remember, you got to remember, Bernie's not a Democrat. Yeah, he was Bernie, Bernie, Bernie's been an independent. He only caucuses with the Democrats. And his ideas, you know, even in the 2016 election and before that, you know, Bernie, Bernie's ideas were so outside of the mainstream, they really didn't. Uh, he, he is, he's an anomaly. He really is in our politics. The one thing I will say positive about, well, there's a lot of positive things I could say about Bernie, but the one definite thing that I would say positive about Bernie Sanders, whether you think he's wacky or you think he's crazy or you think he's a socialist, he's been consistent for 30 plus years. He's been talking about the same issues for 30 plus years. I seem to remember Hillary Clinton didn't even come around to gay marriage until what, 2010, 2012, something like that. And even President Obama, when he was in the White House, said the same thing, his, that his, uh, his uh, views had evolved as far as gay marriage went. Bernie Sanders has been talking about the same, so his, his views have not evolved. He has been consistent. And that's what we really need in politics. We need someone who is consistent. We need a bunch of people who are consistent in their views, who stick to their guns, and can get things done. Well, yeah, I think that would help improve the way everyone views politics. Right now, everyone's so, it's so divisive right now, where if we just had honest, truthful candidates, we may disagree with them. But at least we know that in their mind, they're doing what's best. Ah, and there's the key. Honesty in politics. Uh, that is sorely missing in our politics. You know, I, I listened to the Joe Rogan podcast, and he was talking to Tulsi Gabbard. And he had made a comment about uh, how the, po the politicians should wear uh, those oversuits like the, uh, like the NASCAR drivers do that have the stickers all over them that tell you who, <laughs> who, they're, who, who they're really representing, you know. And I've been thinking about that for – I actually wrote a short story about, uh, about this, about how, you know, you know when they get up and they're debating – and the, uh, they say, we now recognize the esteemed gentleman from Oklahoma, you know? Mm -hmm. it, it, it should be, we now recognize the esteemed gentleman from Exxon, you know, or from the NRA, or who are you really working for? Because it's not the people. Yeah, no, <laughs> I heard that idea too on the, on the podcast, and I thought it was hilarious, but it's, it's true. I think a lot of people don't know who are backing these candidates. And you know what? And it's because people don't, don't uh, take the time to research it. See, I do. There is a, I just interviewed a congressional uh, candidate here in Florida. He's the, he's the local uh, candidate and he's running for, for the fourth congressional seat here against an incumbent who is a Republican. Now, I like the guy that's running. I don't think he's going to win because I think that this is a staunchly conservative stronghold here where I live in Jacksonville. But uh, I went and checked the finances of his opponent and it's all out there. You can see who contributes to their campaigns because they have to file these things with the FEC. And so I was able to see who uh, funds this candidate's uh, uh, campaign. And it was really illuminating to see who is actually putting money behind him and you can go down and you can check his votes and you can see that he votes for 
who is funding him. Yeah, so how do you think we get the money out of politics then? Like with well, the Citizens United has got to be reversed and it's not going to happen. See, that's a problem right there because now the Republicans have the right, has loaded up the Supreme Court, even if Ruth Gader Ginsburg retires or dies, you know, uh, and we are able to get another, you know, we would just have to replace her with another uh, uh, judge that leans left. But right now, the Supreme Court is loaded. You're going to have a bunch of 5-4 decisions, and they're all going to swing towards these, these policies. And the, 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 the Supreme Court has been politicized, and that mm -hmm. is a big problem. Yeah. So for this upcoming election, is Bernie your guy right now? <sighs> I, I would say yes to that question. But I still don't think that any of the Democratic candidates can win. Why not? Well, because Trump has turned it into a reality TV show. I mean, just look at, you know, he, he is Donnie the insult comic. I mean, he plowed through all of the 17 other Republican uh, candidates who are career politicians, you know, and they were all polished and they were all up there with their policies and ideas. Trump had no substance to him. All he did was sit there and insult all of these people. And I can guarantee you that he's already got his one-liners and his zingers for whoever the Democrats run against him. It's not, it's, it's not, it's not a, a political race anymore. It's a reality TV show. Yeah, I think that's, uh, Andrew Yang was, said that the last, last debate as well, how he called a reality TV show. 45 seconds to answer, you get your one-liner in and call it a day. And let's face it, Trump is better at that than any of the Democrats. Yeah, well, <laughs> he was a reality TV star, so. <laughs> yeah, it's a very yeah. successful reality. I wish he would have stayed with it. I wish they would have picked up The Apprentice for uh, another five seasons, and then we <laughs> wouldn't have this mess. So you said you're farther left than any of the other candidates so in what aspect we'll use bernie because he seems to be the farthest left yeah him, him and elizabeth warren i do like elizabeth warren because uh i read it i read a uh, uh a piece on her in the new yorker a few years ago and she is actually blue collar she comes from uh she comes from the middle class you know she has worked her way up pulled herself up by her bootstraps so she knows what it's like to live in a middle-class uh, uh, family. She knows what it's like to work your way up towards something. So I, I, I admire her for that. I just think that if she was the nominee, Trump would Pocahontas her to death. You know? Yeah, I think that would be mean, a huge issue for her. <laughs> she shot herself in the foot with the, with the whole Native American thing. Um, but, but to get back to your question, I... I really do believe Bernie Sanders is genuine. You know, I, I, I really think that, that Bernie has some big ideas and he also has a plan. That's the other thing with Elizabeth Warren. She has a plan for everything, you know. Uh, there's even a t-shirt, I went to her site and Elizabeth has a plan for that, you know. And, uh, but Bernie, you know, when he talked about how to pay down the, the college debt, how to get these people out of debt, it's very simple. And the, 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 his idea is to tax any uh, uh, stock trades. 
you put a small tax on each stock trades on each stock trade and that would more than pay for uh, uh, paying down all student debt in this country. Now, does that sound like a radical idea to you? No, it doesn't. That's actually uh, one, of the thing, one of the things that stood out to me in that interview. He, it was only a 1% tax, right? It wasn't. It's, yeah, it's, it's even it le it's, crazy. It's less. It's less than that, but it's just the volume of trades that we do every day in this country. It would add up to, I think he said $1.4 trillion, you know, and then the, the national student debt is $1.3 trillion. So by doing that, we would actually make money. You know, there'd be a surplus if that's what it was going to. I just don't see, do you trade stocks? Uh, I just started about six months ago. Okay. These guys who trade high volume uh, uh, stocks and, and they do it uh, uh, with, with great frequency would hate that idea because it's going to cut into their, it, it would cut into what they make. It would cut into their profits. Yeah, but what, what I don't understand is it, if the math adds up, obviously I didn't do all the math. I'm sure he had someone do the math and it does add sure. up. And I just can't see how people could be against just a 1% tax. Your sales tax goes up every year. You know what I mean? Like, uh, because, the, because the word tax, because we have turned the word tax into a negative. Anybody thinks that anything that is taxed is now negative. People try and, and, and cheat on their income tax every year. They try and get every little penny that they can every year. Uh, we are having a debate here locally. There is a half percent sales tax that the uh, uh, city of Jacksonville wants to put, and this half percent would go to the schools, and it is being fought tooth and nail for a half percent sales tax tax increase yeah you know, what they, you know what they pay in scandinavian countries for income tax uh i do not they pay 50 percent income taxes it's a little more and a little less but it's right around 50 percent and you don't hear them bitching do you no i i, I don't and do you know why they get all the programs from it that is correct. They have, they have free health care. They have uh, daycare for their kids is free. Nobody pays for it. You take your kids to a center and it's paid for by the government because they have 50% tax rates. They get a lot more return for their tax dollars than we do. Now, they don't have the bloated military that we have, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, they just, Trump just, again, that the budget deal that was just reached on August 3rd, another increase in military spending. So but when we, it, for me personally, when it comes to military spending, I think we do spend too much. I think we're in some countries we shouldn't be in, but also part of the spending is important, like research and development. That stuff is important to have. Yeah, research and development into what? Uh, just new technologies. Okay. New technologies. Doesn't the private sector do that? It does. But even if you look at throughout history, cell phones were invented first in the military. Okay. One example. I mean, most of our, most of our research and development should come from the private sector. Do you know that we pay for research and development for drugs?
yet uh, yet big pharma yet big pharma can charge whatever they want for drugs yet we pay for the research and development into their new drugs yes yeah, so i that's actually an issue that i strongly agree with you on i think i think it's ridiculous that we fund these pharmaceutical companies to figure out research to to invent something to develop something and then they go out and raise the price that it costs to make it like insulin is the number one example costs like four bucks to make it they're out here selling it for 200 and do you know what it costs in canada i'm not sure on the price but it's a tenth of the price yeah it's like 10 bucks right so you know so so what are we doing wrong we're doing something wrong here when you can go across the border and buy insulin for a tenth of the price just just by just by driving over the border and it's not like it's a narcotic insulin is not so you know bringing it back across the border there there, there are no problems there yet you know just by geography just because of geography it's going to cost more for a life-saving drug in one place than it is if you drive you know 10 to 15 to 20 miles over the border in Canada. There's a problem there. Yeah, well, uh, I think, so I'll just ask you, how do you think we fix it? Okay, well, now you put me in a corner. I really believe that we need to start this thing all over again. I know that's not a very popular idea, but your Democrats and your Republicans are already bought and paid for. This thing is not going to change while you have these people that are in power right now. Radical idea, very radical. I understand that, okay? I am talking about, and if you listen to my podcast in the very first uh, episode, I talk about invo invoking a, a Article 5 of the Constitution, which says that... Uh, that we need to, if the government becomes unresponsive to the people, that we need to alter and abolish it. And that is where I stand, because I don't think it can be fixed just by voting the bums out. I don't think it can be fixed by draining the swamp. I think that we need to have a serious conversation about starting this thing all over again. So you don't see any chance that, let's say, a Democratic nominee does win the election, that they're able to pass some sort of meaningful legis legislation to either force the pharmaceutical companies to lower prices or do something about it. Well, it's 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 not just if it was just pharmaceutical prices that would be that would be easy, but it's not just that. What about universal health care? Do you know that us and Papua New Guinea are the only two industrialized nations that do not have some sort of of, of uh, universal health care for its citizens? We have to make healthcare a right in order for, uh, for people to take it seriously in this country. You know, the Democrats have been framed as, oh, they just want to give stuff away, especially Bernie Sanders. He wants to give everything away for free. You know, that is not what Bernie stands for. You know, most Americans are in favor of some sort of healthcare. Do you have healthcare? I do. It's okay. I don't. And, uh, you know, I work right now. I mean, I, I do my podcast thing. I'm a mobile DJ. I do, you know, other things, but I work in a restaurant. I'm a server. And, uh, you know, I make decent money doing that, but God forbid I get sick or hurt at work or anywhere else. 
You know, let's say I go out and play volleyball and roll my ankle and I'm out of work for a week or two weeks. That would be catastrophic to me. And, you know, I don't go to the doctor unless I absolutely necessarily have to. And that's a shame. Why should people put off uh, medical care just to, to pay their bills? Yeah, I agree with that. And, and the healthcare system we have now is barbaric. Yeah, it's, it, it's pretty bad. And so when it comes to universal health care, a big debate going on in the Democratic Party is if you have the Medicare for all, can people still get their own private insurance? Do you agree with that or disagree? Well, I think that that is an issue that, that the right uses to discourage universal health care. You know, oh, they're going to take away your health care and you're going to have to go to these, these government plans. Uh, that's not the way it would work, but that's the way they frame the, the well, argument. No, that's, that's the way what, they frame the issue. That's what Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren said on the debate stage. And then right. Joe, yeah, I, Joe Biden argued against it, saying we should have a government plan that everyone is on. And then if you want extra coverage, you can get your own private. Yeah, I don't agree with that. I mean, if you can afford, you know, to have your own health insurance and that's what, that's the route that you want to go, you should be able to get that. I'm talking about covering the people who don't have uh, any type of, of coverage whatsoever. People like me, for example, and I'm not just saying this for me because I'm, you know, I, I, my girlfriend makes decent money. I make decent money. So we're not poor. We're not, you know, on any type of SSI or anything like that. You know, but we work hard for our money, you know, and if we could afford, if we could afford some sort of health care, I'd pay for both of us, you know, but, but the truth is we can't, neither of us can, and we should be able to afford, afford some type of, of health care. So, and I'll, I'll just say right-leaning argument. They say that the way you go about fixing health care isn't necessarily and I'm talking about people on the right who aren't politicians. Right. A lot of politicians aren't saying this, they're saying healthcare is fine. But an arg a conservative argument, I guess you could say, is that we don't necessarily need Medicare for all. We just need to expand the options. So if, like, right now you can't buy healthcare across state lines. So healthcare in California, let's say, is. We'll I'll use easy numbers is a hundred dollars and healthcare in Kentucky is $50. Right. If you live in California, you're stuck with the 100 instead of the 50. Do you think right. like adding competition? So, yeah. So, and that, that's part of, that's part of the, the specious argument. And the specious argument is that if you live in California, you will pay for healthcare for people in Kentucky and that's not fair. You know, I mean, I, I hear all of these, these arguments that don't hold water. I hear all of these arguments coming from the right, uh, making these, making these, these claims. I mean, Kentucky, Mitch McConnell's state where Mitch McConnell is from has the highest use of food stamps in the country. Yet Mitch McConnell is worth $23 million. He was, he was a millionaire when he came into Congress. He had about his net worth was, I think, I don't have my numbers right, but it was around three, four, maybe $5 million. He's now worth $23 million. You know, how does a politician 
enrich themselves like that in one of the poorest states in the country. Yeah, no, it's ridiculous. You see it all over. Every congressman does it, though. That's the problem. You know, and even Bernie, and I, you know, you know how I feel about Bernie, but if you remember in the last election, Bernie was railing against millionaires and billionaires, you know? Well, yeah, Bernie is a now a millionaire. So now he's, he's, he's dropped the millionaire, by the way. He's only raging against billionaires now. Yeah, I, I get, I understand why people who make lots of money would want to keep their money. The idea of it makes sense. I don't think it's like super greedy. It's like, in their mind, they view that they earned it. Oh, absolutely. And if, you know, if you've listened to my podcast, I've said this before. You know, I am not anti-success. I am all about the American dream. If you invent, I don't know, a, little, a widget, you know, and that widget becomes an overnight sensation and you, you know, become a millionaire or a billionaire overnight because you invented something, then good for you. I'm not anti-success. You know, we should be striving for, to be the best at things. We should be striving to, to, uh, to be comfortable and to make our families comfortable and to pass our wealth on to our children. So I am not anti-success. I am not one of these people that thinks that we need to, you know, tax the rich out of everything that they, they earn. The, but the reality is the rich are not paying their fair share. And Trump's tax cut, which was supposed to go to the middle class, uh, did not, you know, the little, the few people that got benefits from his tax cut, I didn't because my taxes stayed exactly the same from the year before the tax cut to this past year when it was supposed to first take effect. Uh, where was I? What was I saying before that? Oh, about the rich paying their fair mm -hmm. share. But the, the corporate taxes are, have gone on in perpetuity. You know, the, the one for that was supposed to be for the middle class expires in 10 years, while the one for the corporations goes on in perpetuity. How fair is that? Well, you used the Scandinavian countries as an example earlier. Correct. So even they, they do have a high income tax, but their corporate rate is just as low as ours, if not lower, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, but, but the rich individuals are also paying more. Yes. Yeah, so. Know? So one of the plans that I previously, I previously talked about this with the guest, uh, Elizabeth Warren had, it's a, it's a two cent tax for everyone, for ultra millionaires, is that okay. what she called it? Adding basically every dollar after 50 million, it's an extra 2%, and that would add a certain amount of revenue. I, I'm okay with that. I, I think it's... It's terrible when you have a company like Amazon and Jeff Bezos, like they're paying zero in taxes. Right. I think just that income alone could help solve a lot of problems. Well, how, you know, how fair is that? Yeah, it's not very fair. And, you know, they use all of the infrastructure to get their packages from, uh, you know, wherever they're coming. We have, a, we have an Amazon a hub right here in Jacksonville, you know, so they use our roads you know, they use all of the infrastructure that helps them, you know, that the airplanes and all that kind of thing, the air traffic controllers getting planes where they're supposed to go and all of that. They use all of our infrastructure and pay zero in taxes. That's amazing to me. Yeah. And it seems like it's, I, I think it's mostly a problem with our tax code. Well, it is right a problem now. with our tax code. And here is the problem. 
The problem is every year, lobbyists go to Washington and they lobby for whatever it is, you know, whatever their special interest is. And they lobby these congressmen to get their little, their little loopholes or their little whatever discounts on taxes. And Congress just rolls over and gives it to them. You know, who's my lobbyist? supposed to be the people that, that, that represent me in this district, you know, but I can't just walk in and get a sit down with my congressman, but you get a K street lobbyist. He walks into the lobby and that congressman will see him or her immediately, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's the problem. You know, people keep talking about gun control and I'm in a Facebook group and they're very, they're very left leaning, but they say, well, we need to, we need to write our congressman. We need to, here's the phone numbers and they'll put the phone numbers out. And I've told them before, man, check this out. Unless you are going to contribute as much to this guy's campaign as the NRA does, then you're not going to get anything done. Period. Money talks and bullshit runs a marathon. I mean, that's just the way I feel. That is the way that our government is now set up. Well, that's uh, Andrew Yang, one of the candidates running for the Democratic Party. He actually brought up the idea of having democracy dollars. He comes up with funny, I guess, names for each policy he has. But basically, every American has $100 to donate. So if you get 10,000 Americans to support you, they're now giving you a million dollars where that check from the NRA that says 50 grand so you vote their way won't mean as much. Like, right. I don't need your money. I have their money. I mean, there, there's an idea there, and he doesn't need anybody's money. He's a billionaire, so he's fine. Uh, Andrew Yang? Yes. No, he, his net worth is, if I'm not mistaken, only like $4 million, Or I say only. But no, I think he's worth a lot more than that. No, I was just reading an article, and it just... Okay. I, I can look it up real quick, but... Okay. Well, I, so I, I don't so, I don't know the exact numbers, so I'll I'll give you that one. But I I was under the impression he was he was on actually he was on the Joe Rogan podcast, and I watched part of I didn't watch the uh, entire thing, but uh, you know, uh, but I mean I like Yang and I like some of his ideas. I just think that he's too young and his name recognition isn't isn't good enough. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he'd probably make a good cabinet, somebody a, a cabinet member, but I don't think he's ready to run the country now. Well, so two things. Uh, the the net worth thing, something crazy is the average net worth of all the candidates running for president right now is $12 million. Right. So I just, I, I would have same reason why I didn't vote for Trump or part of the reason why I didn't vote for Trump is how do you know that they have your best interests when they also have to worry about their own personal interests as well? So, so you didn't vote for Trump because of policy issues and not because he's a moron? Oh, uh, well, he was a moron, but I, I, I didn't vote for either candidate. It's, wow. Yeah, well, I, I lived in California at the time, so. Right. It was going to go Hillary either way. I could have put down Gary Johnson, but. Or Jill Stein. Or Jill Stein. I don't know. And it, didn't really feel a need to. I voted down the ballot, the rest of the ballot, though. So, right. Where I thought I had a more of a chance of a change. 
I just so, looked it up. Net worth. Yang is estimated to have a net worth of one million, according to Forbes, or according to Newsweek, between three and four million. I thought he was a billionaire. Yeah, uh, supposedly he's had multiple ventures. Right, entrepreneur, lawyer. Okay, I got it. All right. I just wanted to check that while we were talking. That's all. So, what do you think about the universal basic income? You think we should have something like that? You know. When that first I when that idea first came up, I was totally against it. And the reason is because I come from, you know, working class people. And so, you know, if 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 I wanted a car, my parents weren't gonna pay for a car. They might sell me their used car, you know, mm -hmm. if I could buy it from them, but they're not just gonna they're not gonna go out and buy me a car. So, you know, the idea that someone would just give you a thousand dollars per month uh, per month as, as yang is is uh, proposing at first it sounded very outlandish and outside of my values but then i actually sat down and th thought about it for a second and here's what i came up with as far as universal basic income goes if i had enough money to cover my bills for a month you know just my bills you know not my food or anything like that and I didn't have to work this job that I have to work, you know, what else could I do with my time? What else would I do with my time? And the answer to that question was, I'd be pursuing my passions. I'd be pursuing my DJing. I'd be pursuing my podcast. You know, I would be enjoying life, I think, a little more if I knew that I didn't have to work as hard. And so there is an attraction that way when you actually think about it. Um, $1,000 a month, though, is, it's, it's not a lot of money. So I would have to have, you know, some other source of income. But it would give me, it would give me some leverage to follow my passions. So that part of it is a little attractive. I still, I'm still not 100% on board, but I understand now a little more about a universal basic income. Well, yeah, I, I used to be totally opposed to it as well. He's, I think he's made the best argument for universal universal basic income that I've ever heard. Which so, is because I'm not privy to it. So can you enlighten me? Well, so part of it has to do with the automation. Right. So a bunch of people in their late 40s, early 50s who can will be run out of a job. It's government retraining programs or any retraining programs are proven to be successful only like 20% of the time. Right. So now you have a bunch of people with only a certain set of skills who are out of work now. We can't right. just let them die off. And then also part of what you were saying, you will have a happier society. People will be doing what they like to do. Right. And, and I think that is, I think that to me is the attractive part of, of that proposition. You know, I, I still, I, I still think there would be some kinks that would have to be worked out with it, but it's, it's not as wild and crazy as an idea as, as it's portrayed as. I think a lot of Americans, you know, are come from working people. I mean, I, I really believe that. And, and they are basically opposed to something that quote unquote radical. Um, it's going to be a hard sell to get people to say my tax dollars are going to somebody else, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's a big problem even now, even for, the welfare system we have now a lot of people are against it and well the welfare system was is supposed to be a safety net system 
it's not supposed you're not supposed to 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 raise generations of children on it you know i don't like the characterization of the welfare queens who drive up in their cadillacs you know with rings on every finger to pick up their welfare checks that is an unfair uh, characterization it's a it's a caricature that the right has has put forward and i don't think it's 100% true you know i've seen I've seen some conversations on Facebook where this woman was buying steaks and then she, uh, she pulled out her welfare card and she paid for, you know, uh, the bread and all this kind of stuff. And I, I don't believe that. I don't think that, that people are doing that. Look, I used to know a guy, his wife was a nurse. He was a prison guard and he was, uh, uh, he got food stamps. So, you know, here was, here's, and this is a white middle-class guy you know, and he had no shame about it. And, you know, it, it, so the, the idea that these welfare Queens are, you know, all black and, and all that is, is ridiculous because there are also middle-class white people who are gaming the system. That's a problem. That is definitely a problem and it needs to be addressed. But, you know, the, our welfare system is supposed to be a safety net system. It's not supposed to be for people to live on. Yeah, people aren't supposed to get dependent on it. Right. And then there's a whole, people start to get dependent on it, then there's a whole issue going on forward just culturally. If if people are, generations are raised on welfare, welfare then that's a problem. Maybe we need to figure out a way to fix that. Yeah. I mean, that would be, you know, fixing it. How, how, how do you do that? <laughs> you know, are you going to go, are you going to go door to door and, you know, check these people and, you know, see how they're living? I mean, you know, people do get caught in the welfare system, uh, defrauding the welfare system. And when they do, they should be dealt with harshly, you know, but I mean, but I, I just think most a, use it properly. I think most do use it yeah. properly, but like I was just going to say, I think there's the mischaracterization on the right you know, that it's all black women raising, you know, a bunch of kids, you know, using the welfare system. And I don't think that's a fair characterization, but that's the one that's out there. Yeah. And, and I, I get, that's an argument that the right has really placed forward saying that there's people gaming this. They've con- they were able to convince lots of people that a lot of people are cheating the system when it's really just a minority. Most people use it between or between a year to two years are using it the way they're supposed to use it mm-hmm. you know i'm not i thank god i've never you know had to use the system there were time and, and again you know this is coming from a blue collar person now from the middle class there was a time when i probably could have used it but there was that stigma in my mind that didn't allow me to and I was able to get through that time, you know, just by scrimping and saving and just by watching what I spent and all that kind of thing. But there was a time when I probably could have applied for it and probably got it. But in my mind, that stigma was there and I didn't want to have that stigma. Well, so I think the stigma is a good thing, in my opinion. I think you kind of it's bad because you don't want people to feel bad about themselves, but you also want people to have that stigma where they want to work out of it. Stigma is peer pressure. Mm-hmm. That's basically what it is, you know, 
And uh, the, the, the courses that I've taken in, in psychology in, in college, I'm not a graduate. I've, I've taken courses here and there. But that peer pressure is one of the greatest motivating forces uh, that we have as humans. So let's, let's make a shift to CNN just did a town hall. It was like 10 hours long, or seven hours long. Right. With all 10 candidates. Right. Uh, uh, I doubt you watch all of it. I, I, I didn't watch all of it. <laughs> but, no, but I have, a, I have just a different take on, on the, the, the climate debate. Well, let's hear your take. Okay. <laughs> Again, here we go far left. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay. So I, I definitely believe that, that humans are helping to, to bring about climate change. But I think that the scientists are wrong and that we are not that, that, we, can, that we can mitigate the factors, but that we've already passed that point. I really, truly believe that, you know, I think they're giving us, what, 12 years or 10 years? I hear different things. Uh, I've heard 10 years before right. there's irreversible damage. Right, right, right. I believe that we're already past that point. And, you know, the Americans are so, and not just Americans, but all over the world, people are so in love with their internal combustion cars and, Industry is buying off politicians to deregulate their, you know, factories and to where they don't have to, uh, uh, they don't have to put the, the protections in place. Um, and especially now with Trump, all of these regulations on industry are being rolled back. I think we're past the tipping point. I really believe that. And if that is the case, then fine, because the earth will shrug us off like fleas and keep on chugging. The earth was here for 4 billion years before us, you know, and it's seen so many ice ages and floods. And, you know, we're just, we're just a speck in time. We're, we're a speck in the eye of the earth. And, you know, all the plastic that we've put into the ground and into the ocean, man, once we're gone, the earth is just going to be fine. You know, plastic will just turn into a, uh, a, a new plastic plant. You know, the earth will transform it once we're gone. And uh, I mean, I hate to say it, you know, but, you know, if we did this to ourselves, then we did this to ourselves. And the earth is going to be fine. We're, we're not going to save the earth. Okay. We are arrogant to think that we can, quote unquote, save the earth. Earth's going to do just fine, whether we cut back on carbon emissions or don't, you know. And if we are stupid enough to keep using our cars and keep burning fossil fuels the way we are, then we get what we deserve. So if you think, if you think it we're past the tipping point, do you think we can slow it down? You know what I mean? Probably, but you know, you got to go remember too. Well, the, the earth, you know, the dinosaurs lasted for how many, you know, thousands of years and then they were gone and, and, you know, there, there have been others who, who have lasted. I mean, we're, we're, we are not going to save the earth. That is my point. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yeah, we can try and slow it down. And I think it would be better for the environment if we did things. I'm all about the environment. But trying to save the earth, I don't, I, it's, it's, not, it's too big of a problem. And we've already polluted the earth enough. And, 
you know, if the earth fights back with these hurricanes and with the wildfires and all that, then so be it. That's a natural order. So, so, but do you think that we should transition to other technology? Like, should we be spending government money to transition to these other methods? I think we should, but how long is that going to extend us for? Another few decades, another couple of hundred years. I mean, you know, when the, I, think the, I think the damage we've done now is irreversible already. You know, the mm -hmm. Industrial Revolution was almost exactly 100 years ago. And, you know, look how far we've come in just that hundred years. And we're now starting to see uh, the effects of it, you know, and now we're trying to, 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 to pull the reins on it and uh, people aren't cooperating, you know, they're just not cooperating and, you know, people are not going to stop driving their cars. People are not going to stop flying in airplanes. People are not going to stop eating red meat, you know? <laughs> so, you know, where does that leave us? You're not going to change people's habits like that. It's going to take something catastrophic for people to say, well, maybe we should, you know, drive electric cars, you know, maybe mm -hmm. we shouldn't eat as much red meat. Maybe we shouldn't, you know, do this, but I, people, people are programmed to, you know, we only have one life, so we might as well live it the best we can. You know, I mean, that's what we're programmed. That's how we believe, you know? So yeah, there are some environmentally conscious people out there and my hat's off to them. But the truth is, you know, we're eventually going to die out just like the dinosaurs. So, you know, if we are hastening our own destruction, then we are hastening our own destruction. So, so moving forward now. Okay. Let's say. I told you I was way far left. Oh, no, that's not. That's not really far left. That's kind of just depressing. Pragmatism. <laughs> I was, <laughs> but no, I, I agree with you that the the amount of damage that has been done is kind of, it is catastrophic so far. I think we can minimize it, but at the rate that they say in ten years that they'll be able to minimize it by this much, I think it'll probably end up being only half of that, just because. People like their trucks. I don't know. People like going on vacation. Sure. Look, so. and, and maybe, you know, maybe, uh, maybe the scientist who can figure out a way to, you know, uh, scrub the, scrub the greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere and, you know, uh, 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 patch the, the, the hole in the ozone layer and all that, you know, maybe that guy was just born today, you know, and maybe in 20, 20, 25 years, you know, we'll be able to do that. But as of right now, I just, I just don't see humans are, we are, we are conditioned the way we're conditioned and things are fine right now. And, you know, we don't, we aren't really very forward thinking as for the, yes, there is a movement, you know, the green new deal and all this kind of stuff. And I applaud people who are trying to do that. I just, I just think that they're, I, I it's like spitting in the ocean, you know, it's mm -hmm. not, it's not going to make that much of a difference so let's move on to gun control because that's, that's the one i that's the episode that i listened to and i i thought you made decent argument uh or you made decent arguments throughout the episode so i i just want 
you to share your point of view, why you believe it, just for my listeners. Well, so. I think the Second Amendment is an archaic uh, uh, part of our Constitution. You know, people always stress the part about the right of the individual to, to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And they leave out the part that comes before that, which states, you know, a well-regulated militia necessary for the defense of, you know, the nation, you know, uh, uh, people always leave that part out. And what they fail to realize is that, you know, when the Second Amendment was written, it made sense for us to have a, a well-regulated militia with everybody owning guns because they were scared. They had just won their independence from England and they thought that England might try and come and take the colonies back, which they did. They tried to. Um, but they also had, they also had slaves and you had to keep your slaves in line, you know, and if a slave's running off, you know, you, you could whip him if he's, you know, within six or eight or 10 feet, but if he's running off, you know, it would be difficult for you to, you know, get him with the whip. So you had to have guns, you had to have muskets to keep the slaves in line. And then the other thing was the Indians, you know, the Indians, we were, we were in constant wars with the Indians because we were encroaching on their land and, you know, they would attack far flung settlements. And so we had to have guns. So that was the basis why the founding fathers uh, uh, wanted to have uh, uh, a militia and wanted everybody to be able to own and, and have guns. They were scared of a standing army. They thought that a standing army would be an instrument of tyranny and that it could turn against the people. So they really didn't care for, for having a standing army. The militia was called upon when needed and then disbanded and sent back to their homes when not needed. That was the basis of the Second Amendment. Well, you know, we do have a standing army now. You know, we have the strongest military in the world. Why do we need to have individual gun ownership? And the right will tell you, oh, it's to defend our homes, or what if the government turns against us? You know, they have all these specious arguments for it. And none of those arguments hold water. Because let me tell you something. If you're a gun owner and the government wants your guns, they're going to get them. They're going to come. They're, they're not going to, if you have a, a, an AR-15 in your home and the government wants it, they're not going to come with, you know, two AR-15s or 10 AR-15s. They're going to come with tanks. They're going to come with helicopter gunships. They're going to come with drones over your house 24-7 with Hellfire missiles, and they will get that gun. So the idea that, you know, it's against government tyranny, that doesn't hold water. Protection, protection from robbers or whatever. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. But if you're a responsible gun owner, you don't have a loaded gun lying around your house. If you're a responsible gun owner, you've got it locked in a safe somewhere in your house. So if someone's breaking into your house, you've got to go and you've got to get to that safe and you've got to get the combination and you've got to load the gun. I mean, does that make much sense? Well, I, in my personal opinion, I think, especially if you're in a city like Los Angeles or I think Jacksonville is somewhat of a bigger city. It is. Where uh, and there's a lot of gun violence here, by the way. Where police have, those places police have quicker response times than where I live right now. Okay. Response times are a lot slower. So I would at least want a fighting chance. Even if 
if I'm a responsible gun owner, it takes me, if it's a little turn knob or is it just buttons you push to open the safe, I would rather bet on myself than hope. Okay. All right. And I'll give you that. All right. I mean, I, I am not against individual gun ownership, you know, even though with what I've said about the second amendment, I think that the, the, uh, the, the horses has bolted from the barn a long time ago, as far as individual gun ownership goes, there are just too many guns out there. So even if, even if the government was to decide tomorrow, we're taking all the guns, they wouldn't get them all. All right. I'm just being a pragmatist here. Mm -hmm. They're not going to get all of the guns. All right. So I'm really not against individual gun ownership. What I am against is individual idiots with guns. That's what I'm against. You know, I mean, we've seen all these mass shootings. It's what, 260 or something and counting this past year in this, just this year. That's not counting all of the ones we've had before. The Pulse nightclub, Sandy Hook, Las Vegas, Columbine, you know, and the list goes on and on. Those are just the, the major ones that we all remember. You know, we're not talking about the, the, the small ones that go on in Americans. The 27 people that were killed in Chicago this past weekend with guns, you know. So we're not even talking about, you know, all of that stuff. I'm not against individual gun ownership. I just think too many morons have guns, you know. How do we solve that problem? Now, we need to have a serious discussion. Uh, the, the, and, and it was so funny after the Dayton and El Paso shootings. It's funny, but it's not funny that the, the right came out with all of those arguments. It's mental illness. It's video games. It's Ilan Omar. It's, you know, and on and on and on and on and on, except for the one key component to each of those shootings, the gun itself. You know, and, it, it, if you are not thinking like that, then you're not thinking clearly. I mean, that's just the way I feel. Well, if you don't see that the gun is the, 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 the uh, linking component in each of these shootings, then you are not being honest. You're being extremely myopic and you're being disingenuous in your arguments. So this is me just trying to play devil's advocate. Okay. If we're talking 290 mass shootings, so I imagine 290 people did the mass shootings. Right. Unless there's two people doing it at once. But anyway, so we're talking, there's over 100 million gun, legal gun owners. And okay. most of these mass shootings are done with guns obtained illegally. So Correct. Uh, it's... I, I think there's something that we should do to make it harder for people to obtain guns illegally. And well, I think they're, legally they're, we need stricter gun control. They're just uh, talking about this guy, the, the, the last major one, uh, it was, uh, oh shoot, where, where was it? The, the last one we just had this weekend. And they said that he had tried to buy a gun legally and he failed. The, so the background check worked, that he failed the, the background check and he couldn't get a gun. So all he did was went to a private owner and bought it from a private owner who is not required to, 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 uh, to, to, to run a background check on him. So he had already failed trying to go the legal way and he, and he bought the gun legally from the private owner. So really you can't say he obtained it illegally. He, com- he obtained it completely legally through the private seller exemption that I yeah, talk about which, on the podcast. 
which is something that I think we need to fix. You know, I, I, we're talking 290 people out of a hundred million are responsible for horrific acts. Do you really want to go with that argument? I think, I think it's a decently valid one from the right. It's a decently valid argument that just because only 290 people have killed X amount of people using guns that we shouldn't do anything about it. Is that the argument? Well, uh, I no, not at all. Uh, I think we, we still need to make changes when it comes to private sellers and. Yeah, and but see, here's the problem. And I, I got into a, I got into an argument with somebody on Facebook and this guy is one of those right wing second amendment gun nuts. And he was saying how I had said we need to close the, uh, the, the, uh, the gun, the gun show loophole, right? And he jumped all over me. There's no such thing as a gun show loophole. You need to get your facts straight, you know? So I was like, whoa, well, maybe he's right. So I went and looked at it and I went and, and, and checked it out to get my facts straight. And it, it, it was just my terminology. It's called the, uh, it's called the uh, secondary market exemption or the uh, private seller exemption but it's the same thing as the gun show loophole. Mm -hmm. You know, he just, uh, it said when, when I looked up the term, it said gun show loophole is a political term. It is not a, you know, actual thing. You know, it should be called, you know, secondary market exemption or private seller exemption, you know? So I went back on Facebook and I told him, yeah, I did educate myself. You, you know, jerk. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, if I'm wrong about something, I'll be the first one to admit it, you know? And I was just wrong about my terminology, but I knew that that existed, that there was that exemption. And that is how this guy in this last mass shooting got his gun through a private seller, you know? Which I, we, I agree is a problem. I, I how think, do we change that? You know, uh, I mean, do we just make all private gun sales illegal in this country? Then you send it to the black market because just legislating something does not stop it. We know that from drugs, you know? I mean, drugs have been illegal in this country for X amount of years, and they keep making more drugs illegal each year. And it hasn't stopped our appetite for drugs. It hasn't stopped the sale of drugs. It hasn't stopped the smuggling of drugs. So just legislating something doesn't mean that it's going to go away. Well, yeah, exactly. And so I guess a problem that a lot of my right-leaning friends are – I, I interviewed someone just uh, yesterday and yeah. he, he was a huge conservative and he was explaining how he believes that or it's the argument that I proposed earlier that an act of a few shouldn't dictate for the rest. So it's the but same it does. reason why it's it's the same reason why more people are killed by knives than AR-15s, but we're not here trying to ban knives. Yeah. Just, well, you know, you know what's funny to me is the right is always talking about, we need to ban Muslims. We need to ban this. We need to ban that. But when it comes to guns, it's, all, oh, bans don't work. <laughs> you know? I mean, it, the, my problem with the right is they're not being honest with their arguments, you know? Yeah, you can sit there and you can say, uh, uh, okay, yeah, knives kill more people every year than guns do. 
that we're, and you don't see us banning knives. That is a specious argument. That is disingenuous uh, it, it, to the max, you know, to say that. Because knives are used every day for good purposes, you know. I, I, I saw uh, something on Facebook where a guy pulled a knife on a, on, a, on a cashier and the guy behind him pulled a gun and stopped him. You know, the one time when the good guy with the gun just happens to be standing there, you know, and, and, and they caught it on, 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 a, on tape, you know, and that's the, but that's not the reality. That is the exception to the rule. Most of the time, it's just a bad guy pulling out a gun and just starting to, to fire randomly, you know, with no good guy around. You know, I, I'll never forget the video of Parkland where this active shooting is going on. Now they're talking about arming teachers, right? This active shooting is going on inside this school and an armed, trained police officer stands outside and does not go in and confront the bad guy. You know? I mean, so that right there tells me, you know, the cop wasn't even going to run into that school and you want to give Miss Johnson, the home ec teacher, a gun? That doesn't make any sense to me. You know, it's disingenuous arguments. That's what I don't like. I don't like people who are hypocritical. And until the right starts coming up with some good arguments, we do need to, look, 93% of people in this country, and I keep hearing different numbers, feel that we need to do something about guns. You know, just because a ban on AR-15 doesn't work doesn't mean we shouldn't do something. You well, know? It, uh, that's where I agree with you. I think, I think we need to have stricter background checks. I think we need, I think states should have their own laws, but I also believe that we need a federal minimum set of rules. No one law is going to do anything, but maybe oh, yeah. a combination of laws and maybe some, we talked about it earlier in, in this podcast, maybe some peer pressure, you know, some stigma against these things. Maybe some of that, maybe a combination of all these things will work. But I mean, something has to be done to sit back and say, well, since this won't work, we shouldn't do anything. That's a disingenuous argument. I don't like that argument. I don't think it's, it's right. I don't think it's, it's being honest. So what do you think about, so I know you said the right brought out a bunch of different issues after this past shooting. The one issue that I do agree with that I think we need to do something about is the mental health issue. I, I'm not, I don't want to demonize people with a mental illness, but there is, there's a couple common denominators. I think it was a study done by the NIH and the LA Times wrote an article about it. Okay. And mental health, in a majority of the mass shootings, mental health had a factor in it, whether they were on drugs or they had history of a mental illness. Right. Well, th you know, this goes back to the healthcare debate that we were talking about. Yeah. You know, if we had better healthcare and, you know, we were able to, to get these people mental help, you know, with free or very little charge to them, you know, that would be a step in the right direction, I think. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that not a lot of people know is that, Back in the 70s and 80s, we had in 50s, up until the 80s, then the mental health and public mental health institutions started getting defunded in the 80s. Yeah. And, and now we've seen 
an increase in mental illness, but people can't necessarily afford the care. Well, up in, up until the late 60s, college was almost free mm-hmm. for most people. You know, the profit motive creeped in. You know, and that's why you have crushing debt. But, you know, up until, you know, the, the, through the 50s, after World War II, you know, through the rest of the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, you know, with the GI Bill and with other things, college was either, you know, virtually free or affordable for everyone. It wasn't this thing that we have now where it's $100,000 a semester to go to some of the best schools or even to, you know, just community colleges. I mean, it wasn't this, it wasn't the, uh, this profit-driven thing that it is today. Yeah, well, it, it used to be you could work your summer job, save up all your money, and then you pay for college for the sure. next year. You know, so, you know, and uh, I, I don't know, you know, as far as the, the mental health goes, I believe you. I believe what you're saying as far as that goes, you know. And then somewhere along the way, we got away from that. And, you know, that is the same time that I'm talking about that they started to dissolve the unions, started to dissolve the middle class. You know, all this stuff t- took place in the late 70s and definitely through the 80s, you know. And by the 90s, the middle class, the difference between the middle class and, you know, the next step up was so huge and so vast. You know, I went to Ireland in 1991, and it re- that really opened my eyes. Because if you go to a country like Ireland, there is no middle class. You are either rich or you are poor. There is no middle class in Ireland. Now, that's the way it was in 1991. I don't know if that's changed. But it, it, just, it just seemed odd to me. Uh, I stayed with a family who did, who did not have a phone in their house. There were six people living in a small house. We had to go down to the, to the store to use the phone. And they were great people. So I'm not saying because they were poor, they were not good people. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But it was very stark, the contrast between rich and poor. And I stayed a summer there. And, you know, at the end of the summer, you know, I couldn't wait to get back to the States. But it really opened my eyes to the difference between the United States and, and, and Ireland. I mean, in the United States, a 15, 16-year-old girl or boy has a phone in their room. You know, everybody's got a phone. There's, there's, not a, there's not a house in the United States today that doesn't have a phone in it, you mm-hmm. know, whether it's a mobile phone or whatever. You know, back in 1991, when I was in Ireland, that was not true. A whole family of working people could not afford to have a phone in their house, you know. And that was the stark difference between, to me, you know, uh, uh, Ireland and the United States. No middle class whatsoever. And you were slowly starting to see that. Now it's in a relative way, you know, in this country, relative poverty, you know, we are still richer than, you know, most countries. Even our poorest people would be rich in other countries. Make no mistake about that, okay? But the, the inequality in income has become more and more stark over the past 20 years. It has, and... Do you, how do you think we should fix it? Well, we need, we need higher taxes on the people who make more money, plain and simple. Well, and then not, what do we do with that money to help the people at the bottom? Well, it's income. It's, taxes are a way to, to redistribute income. You know, If we had more taxes on the rich, then we could afford more services for everyone. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. More money 
in the government's hand, they can do more with it. No, I mean, not, not just, you know, take, not just take a rich guy's money and give it to a poor guy. It doesn't work yeah. like that, you know, but having a more egalitarian society, you know, than we have right now. Well, we've been talking for a little bit over an hour now. Yeah. It, it's felt like 15 minutes. Conversation. Thank you. I'm kind of flattered. I didn't think I'd be your cup of tea. Oh, everyone's my cup of tea. I just like hearing other <laughs> ideas and why people believe the, the stuff that they do. <laughs> I like to learn. Well, if anybody wants to check out my podcast, uh, my far left podcast, it's called Radio Revolution. Uh, and I'm up to uh, seven episodes now. My last one was about uh, perpetual war, and I think it's one of my better ones. I like it, um, but you can check it out on Anchor, Radio Revolution, or you can email me at radiorevolution409 at gmail.com. That's radiorevolution, all lowercase letters, 409 at gmail.com. All right. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Nick. It was a pleasure. Yeah.